Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast continues to enjoy inclusion on lists of the best podcasts to listen to. As a matter of fact, today I just uh, was informed that it's on another list as number 10 for business podcasts. And if I had it in front of me, I could tell you what that list was. Uh, but I will pull it up and, and tell you in just a minute. Um, this is really because of the guests who join me. They have expertise in some area of business and they give of that expertise they give freely they take out time out of their busy day and share it with all of you so that you can uh, find the answers that you need the ideas that you're looking for maybe solutions to um, situations you've got going on so you can do better things in your business than you were doing before and that um, site is owltail o-w-l-t-a-i-l.com so now that I've done that, uh, today we have a guest who has a great deal of expertise in his field. Uh, joining me today is Alex Kersberg. Alex has worn four hats in his 17-year legal career, including serving as a business litigator with large, large law firms, in-house counsel with a large corporation, and an officer with a line haul truck company in the Army with a year of combat deployment in Iraq. He is currently the CEO of Cover My Six and head of the Gertzberg Law Firm in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Thanks for joining me today, Alex. Thanks for having me, Diane, and congratulations on making that list, that latest list. Hey, thanks. I know it's, it's really been great, um, and it really is because people love to listen to the podcast because the guests give them at least one nugget, you know, that they take away and they take into their business. And so um, they know to come back and, and listen often. So I am blessed to have that uh, going on with this, this labor of love, as I like to call it, because a little bit of love. You've got, a bit of love. You've, got a, you've got a really great podcast, Diane. So I'd be okay. proud too. It's really cool what you're doing. Well, and you do too, and we will talk about that later because I want everyone to know about yours. Uh, but in the meantime, um, we are going to be talking today about uh, staying out of jail 
uh, <laughs> or staying out of court, I should say. Hopefully you stay out of jail, but staying out of court, which, which I think is an interesting topic for business people because sometimes I think they like bury their head in the sand and think, oh, nothing could ever happen to me or my business. And um, I, I think we want to make sure they realize that if they cover themselves, if they get it taken care of, then that is true. They will hopefully never have to go to court. Um, and there's things that they can do. But I want to start with, um, I'm curious, if you have a sense of why so many people go into the legal profession, because there seems to be an awful lot of lawyers out there. Yeah, I do. Uh, at least I think I do. Um, I think that there is still um, a romance that attaches to the practice of law. Um, and that romance is definitely there when you enter law school, where you are pretty sure you're going to be the uh, fighter for truth and justice in the American way. And it's going to be you as the person standing between um, you know, your client and either the government that's trying to uh, come down on them or some other litigant, um, or you're going into it um, because of the romance associated with putting, uh, solving problems and putting puzzle pieces together that help uh, business people or um, anyone who is trying to build an organization. Initially, I think that's what gets people into law school. And um, it is, it is, I think, an honorable profession and an honorable tradition. And that's part of it, too. And most people, I think, that start law school graduate from law school. And then they are lawyers. And it is still a very saturated field. Um, there are still way more way more lawyers out there than there are good cases um, and uh, and and those lawyers need to feed their families and need to pay back their student loans so they look for cases and they look for clients they look for defendants to sue is that why so that's so interesting because you know I wonder this all the time Sometimes I think the, the legal profession has the same sort of reputation as used car salesmen, <laughs> which, you know, isn't great. So <laughs> right. is that why? Is it, is it because they are, are trying to pay their bills so they're fabricating, not fabricating, but, but really maybe trying to create cases where they don't exist yeah. or what? Yeah. Um, well, so – the reputation, I the, the the hit to the reputation in the profession comes largely, I think, from the billboards and the commercials, and that doesn't really class it up very much. Um, sometimes I I think that lawyers peddle in human misery, the litigators especially. Um, uh, trial. So there's really two kinds of lawyers there's transactional lawyers and then there's litigators there's other kinds but those are most most practitioners fall into one of those two buckets they're either transactional lawyers or they're litigators i think that the litigators or trial lawyers are usually the ones um or, or a portion of them are usually the ones responsible for uh creating the 
bad reputation. There, there's still ambulance chasing that happens. Um, we try to police ourselves, um, and by that I mean the in Ohio anyway, the Supreme Court um, polices our conduct as a profession. There are a lot of ethical rules, including rules prohibiting ambulance chasing, but it still happens. It just happens under a different process, and that process involves billboards and aggressive advertising, and um, that gives the profession a bad name. And, and to your second point, yeah, there is definitely a cycle where once the lawyer is out there, now they need clients and now they need cases to keep paying the bills. And um, there are good cases and there are cases that should never see the light of day. And those cases in the second category still see the light of day because getting past a motion to dismiss is not difficult. A lawyer can threaten and file lawsuits and um, and create work for the other side. Um, a lot of settlements happen uh, based on what we call nuisance value, which is basically an amount of money that you're going to pay to the other guy to just go away. Um, so there's there there is that cycle of um, you know this saturated field of of lawyers who uh, need to pay their bills. They need to. Um, uh, keep practicing. They don't want to go into a different field. Um, and they pound the pavement for clients and cases and, and file lawsuits that shouldn't be there. So it, uh, do you think that like the transactional attorneys are um, sort of lost in, in the shuffle on all of this? The people don't realize they're out there every day doing their thing because it's more uh, hate to use the word, but mundane? Yeah. Um, that's a great question, Diane. I think that um, I would – so no, I don't think that they're lost in the shuffle. They're just not as prolific. Um, the, the trial lawyer, lawyers, the litigators are the ones on CNN. They're the ones you see uh, commenting on the big cases of the day. Um, and and they're they're – stock in trade, meaning disputes, are a little sexier than the transactional work that happens, but which has to happen in order for uh, businesses to grow and, and to make deals happen with each other. And there's um, somebody early on in my career told me that the one of the biggest differences between transactional lawyers and litigators in terms of mindset is that litigators are really good at telling stories and weaving narratives together um, and um, touching emotional buttons. That's what they're supposed to do. Transactional lawyers, on the other hand, focus a lot more on jigsaw puzzles and on solving problems where there is no dispute. So transactional lawyers are, are highly skilled and there's a complexity to what they do that just isn't as flashy and as sexy as what litigators do to some people, but is still so important. Right. Okay. So, um, I, so, so I'm trying to think about how I want to say this question or ask this question. There are so many 
people starting businesses uh, that, you know, I would say in the past 10 years, a good number of people have decided this is what they want to do. They want to jump in, but they don't. And, and then sometimes they do it with a family member or a friend or an associate, and they don't think they need to have um, a contract or any sort of documentation that outlines who's responsible for what, what they do in the event of a dispute, you know, on and on and on. There's so much to it. Can you um, talk about that and why that is, I'm going to say, dangerous for them to believe and, and move forward with that mindset? Yeah. So the reason... So I think you, you hit the nail on the head. That kind of thinking, which is very limited and very myopic, is rampant and common. And, and I, I don't judge people for having that mindset. When you start your business, it's exciting, but you have limitations on uh, what you can do with your money and with your time. And the one thing that you know how to do really well is the thing that you're either making or selling. It's the widget, right? So um, what all the other inputs are, the other components of your business, you don't know those things nearly as well as the thing that you're making or selling. So they're kind of afterthoughts. And because you have pressures on your spending and on your time, you spend less time and money on those things. And law, legal uh, protections um, are um, is one of those things. So <clears throat> usually what happens, and unfortunately it keeps law firms like mine really busy, is um, they go to Google and they pull forms off the internet or they'll call their cousin the DUI lawyer because he's the only lawyer they know and they'll say, okay, I need to incorporate. Um, I think, what should I do? And they'll see that you go to the Secretary of State's website and you uh, register your company name. So they do that. And then they don't do anything more on the corporate side, even though that's, as you, as you pointed out, pretty dangerous. You, th there is more work that needs to happen there to really shore up your limited liability status. Um, then they say, okay, well, I need a contract with my customer. Great. That's intuitive. You figured that part out. But the next question is, well, where am I going to get it and how good is it going to be and how strong is it going to be? And is it customized and tailored to my business and to how I interact with my customers? In order to do those other things, you need generally time and money. And when both are in limited supply, like I said, you call your, your, your cousin, the DUI lawyer, and they'll pull something off of the internet too. Um, but they all have very limited effect. Um, but that's the reason I think that it happens. And it's not, it's neither unusual, nor is it something that I would ever, um, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't judge someone for doing it because it's so common because right. that's what business owners do. You just have to think through what that does for you. The thing of it is, Diane, and, and I talk about this all the time um, with entrepreneurs and with startups, the lawsuit's going to happen. It's only a matter of time. 
the question is, what's your exposure going to be and how much are you going to lose when that happens? Yes, you're going to have to write a check to a lawyer and um, there's a decent chance you're going to have to write a check to the other side. But that's not where the pain stops. That's painful, but that's not where it stops. Where it stops is that you're now going to be in it. You're going to be it. You're, you're on the ride and it's going to be distracting. It's going to be stressful. Uh, everything is going to be in a public record. You're going to feel the need to explain things to your employees, to your customers, because the plaintiff's lawyer is just character assassinating you in, in public filings. Um, it's going to uh, potentially be in your credit report. There is this spiral of non-monetary um, consequences that happens once you're on that ride, on that that you know civil procedure ride and it's all totally avoidable um but you have to get out of that initial mindset that we just talked about you have to not be myopic you have to be forward thinking and you have to say all right it is worth the investment up front even though i don't have a lot of time and a lot of money it's worth it it's worth it now and is it is it less expensive to to you know, button up all those things at, at the beginning than having to do the cleanup later? Um, I think the answer is a thousand percent yes. <laughs> when you get, when you, when you get um, sued, or maybe you're the plaintiff and you have to sue a, um, a customer uh, or an employee, but once you're in court, um, you are um, writing a check to a lawyer and if that lawsuit comes out of one problem that you have um, at the end of that process you're probably going to fix one problem but you have by running a business in america a lot of legal issues um, i usually put them into one of six categories um, and then within them when you drill down there's a multitude of subcategories, but it's customer relations, employment relations, vendor relations, shareholder issues, insurance issues, and technology issues. I've been litigating now for about 18 years, and 99.5% of every one of the thousands of lawsuits that I've been involved in has generally fallen into one of those six categories. When you're waiting to get your house in order and you don't address those issues until you get sued over one of them you're going to spend a lot of money to fix one problem when what you could have done is spent a fraction of that money to fix a lot of problems and then you sleep much better at night too yeah right yeah it it, it so it, it makes so much sense intellectually um right that it, 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 but as you said, you know, sometimes there are people who can't necessarily afford it or don't think they can afford it. That's why I wanted you to go down that road because I want them to be thinking, okay, hang on a second. You know, short-term thinking leads to long-term consequences. Right. So that right, they need to be thinking a little more long-term. Now, I, I wanna I wanna drill down into. Um, one area of that, which is the 
um, like stakeholder shareholders, issues, yeah. shareholders, partners, whatever. Because um, right. I hear people say, oh, no, I, I don't have to. They're my best friend. We get each other. We not a problem. We we talk about blah 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 whatever, and and then the problem happens and there's a disagreement and they have nothing in writing that outlines what they do in the event something like that happens. And so, talk some if you would about how lawyers. Um, like know to look at those sorts of things or ask those sorts of questions to get to what really needs to be um, ironed out. Right. So there's, there's two sort of buckets of issues there. One is if you are, if you've incorporated your business um, and you have partners and you don't have a partnership agreement or a shareholder agreement or an operating agreement, and those are just different names um, that are assigned to the kind of entity you have. So a partnership will have a partnership agreement, corporation will have a shareholder agreement, and an LLC will have an operating agreement. If all you've done is filed your paperwork with the Secretary of State, but you haven't taken the time to create another document that um, spells out what your agreement is among the owners and then between the owners and the entity, then you haven't completed the corporate formalities that you need to um, get more protection from creditors. An LLC is a limited liability company. Half of that is limited liability. You incorporate to get limited liability to protect your assets. Part of that is filing something with the Secretary of State, but the other piece of it is following other corporate formalities like having an operating agreement. So that's one reason to make sure that you have one. The second reason, though, is um, when things go bad, (laughs) when there's a dispute, when there isn't enough money, when your recollection is different, um, you're no longer friends. You're not friends anymore as it relates to that dispute. You were really good friends when you started, but especially when money is involved and maybe um, the needs of each partner um, are different and somebody's desperate, there's a really good chance you're not going to be friends anymore. And that's what lawyers think about. And I, I would say that's what good lawyers think about when they're drafting those things. So big questions are, how is money going to be distributed and when? Um, how are disputes going to be resolved? Are you, are we, is everyone just rushing to court when there's a dispute or are you going to have um, mediations, arbitration, um, notices and opportunities to cure? Um, what decisions, this is really important, what decisions require unanimous approval and what decisions require majority approval? What decisions don't require either of those because you're allowing one person to make decisions for the entire company in particular situations? Um, Those are the questions that we ask our clients when we create these documents for them. Okay. That's great. Because I, you know, some people listening are absolute, you know, they get it. Maybe they have a lawyer in their family, so they understand it. But, um, but then I think there are people listening who 
hadn't really considered that side of it because, you know, we want to believe that we have those really great relationships and we do. But I think it was really important what you said that once there's an issue, you are no longer friends. Right. 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 And there's a, there's a couple other scenarios that really um, are contemplated and assisted in those um, governing documents and those um, operating agreements and, and shareholder agreements, partnership agreements. So um, there are tax provisions that you would put in there to let the IRS know how you are as a, as an as an organization electing to be treated, whether it's a, as an S corporation or a C corporation or what have you. Um, that's something that has giant consequences if it's not spelled out in your governing documents. Another is um, how do you sell the company um, when you have different um, interests, different levels, right? So let's say somebody's a majority shareholder and somebody's a minority shareholder. Um, when can the majority shareholder uh, or shareholders decide that they can sell the entire business even though a minority shareholder objects. That's something called drag along rights. Um, Conversely, when can a minority shareholder um, um, tag along, those are called tag along rights, tag along with the majority when the majority wants to sell just their own interests. Um, So there's a lot that goes into that decision and people don't really think about it. Um, transfer, transfer restrictions are really important. When you um, start your business, let's say there's three or four of you who start your business together and you're thinking, um, this is great. I can see us all um, doing business forever because we're all such good friends. We grew up together. We know how each other think. Well, what happens when one of them dies? Yeah. Or what happens when one of them no longer wants to stay in the business and wants to sell it to a guy that, or a woman that you've never even met? Um, the, the, the smaller businesses, um, they know that they're getting into it with their original people. But when something happens to one of them, bankruptcy, divorce, uh, death, disability, or just wanting to get out of the business, the remaining partners, um, they, you all want to contemplate what will happen to that person's interest. Usually what we do is we create rights of first refusal um, so that before somebody transfers their, um, their interest to a bankruptcy court or to a, a spouse in a divorce or to anyone else, they have to offer that interest to the other members of the organization or to the company so that the company can redeem them. I can I can go on forever. There's a lot of other kinds of considerations. I, I, I hit on some of the more important yeah. ones that I think are there. But to your point, Diane, you start out as friends and you start out thinking everything's going to be cool. And a good business lawyer will dig in, will ask a lot of questions, and will help you anticipate the various scenarios that may exist when either you're not friends anymore or when someone wants to leave or anything other than the, you know, the origin story, the, 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 how you started. So thank you. I I think those are such important points and I'm going to actually share a real life uh, example. So people get that this, this happens 
every day, all the time. When I first came to Cleveland, I was working for a company. I lived in Michigan. I was working for a company out of Michigan, and it was started by a man and a woman who were in the industry and the man's wife who was not in the industry, but they did it that way because back then uh, you could say you were a female business if you just had right. majority female ownership, right? So they start this business, they get it up and rolling. It's rock and rolling. We come to Cleveland to open an office. I come and open it. The male owner um, is driving back and forth from Detroit to Cleveland for meetings and whatnot. And on one of those trips, he gets in a horrible car accident and dies. And can I just say his own fault? Cause he was trying to work while he was driving and wasn't paying attention mm -hmm. to the road. But having said that, whole other story. Um, it was tragic. It was horrible. It was a really, really bad thing. And it was compounded by the fact that they did not have a buy sell agreement. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the woman who was in the industry owned the business with the wife who was not in the business who now owned two thirds of the business right. and didn't know a thing about it and thought it was worth more than it was and wouldn't sell her shares to people in the business. So it, it was horrible for years. Right. And, and that kind of thing happens every day. Yeah. And, and I'm willing to bet that the, uh, so did that end up in litigation? You know, I don't know what actually ended up having uh, happening with it because I ended up leaving the company. Okay. So I, I don't know so, how they worked it out. So what I was going to say, um, and I think this applies whether it did or didn't end up in litigation, is somebody was probably paying a lawyer a bunch of money. Probably multiple parties were probably paying lawyers a bunch of money to help them resolve that dispute. But it wasn't just the money that was painful there, right? They, especially the woman who was in the business to begin with, um, is having a really hard time focusing on her business and on her employees and on her uh, and on growing the uh, the the enterprise and on the business plan. And instead, what she's thinking about is who's going to control the business now that he's gone, and how are we going to keep going? And that is a big giant distraction and it's really stressful it's emotional yeah right i think that's a great point absolutely okay i got to take a quick sponsor break and then we'll continue the conversation accelerate your business growth podcast is happy to be sponsored by audible.com audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information they have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. An example of a book you can listen to on audible.com is The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients by David A. Fields. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, explore the books that are of interest to you, and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're speaking with Alex Gertzberg about staying out of court um, and various and sundry other things. So this may sound like a strange question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How does a company or how can a company protect itself from lawyers? Great question. 
Um, there are a number of steps that a company should do to do just that. Uh, the first and the general concept, as we talked about earlier, is be proactive. Don't wait. Um, talk to a lawyer early on and square yourself away in each of those six areas that I mentioned. Um, and it's a, it's pretty cynical, but I, I, I I often describe business in America as um, a business is just a series of relationships with people waiting to sue you. So, <laughs> that is a little so, out. Yeah, but it's true. It's true. And it helps me keep my clients safe by orienting them to the universe of plaintiffs that are out there. Um, and I gave you six areas before. Four of those are relationships, the employees, the vendors, the shareholders, and the customers. Um, and usually I focus people in on customers and employees. Um, employees have the greatest amount of protection from the law, from the government. Um, and customers, if you're doing business well, is going to be your largest number of potential plaintiffs. Because if you're good at what you do, you're making a lot of sales. Um, so, um Again, being proactive about getting those units, those buckets squared away is, is the first thing to do. And, and, and doing that with an attorney um, is usually a good idea. Um, the second thing I, I would say is think about the documents. The relationship with people who are waiting to sue you is almost certainly defined by some document. With customers, it's your contract, your customer agreement. With employees, it could be an employee handbook. It could be an employment agreement. It could be um, an offer letter to some extent, uh, but there are documents there. Uh, your vendors will generally have a contract. Um, your shareholders, we already talked about the shareholder agreement. Um, so look at those contracts and make them protect you. Um, I usually. I usually tell uh, my clients um, right off the bat that when I draft a contract for you, I'm going to be like that little kid in the sandbox that won't let anybody else play with their toys. I'm going to be selfish and I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to create as many barriers to you getting sued as possible. I'm not going to create barriers for one of these folks to complain to you about it because if you're a business you want to know what you're doing wrong and you want to you want to have the opportunity to fix those things that's fine but i don't want the first time you hear about a problem to be when you get a summons so i want i'm going to make it harder for you to get sued and how do i do that so let's take the customer contract for example um with customer agreements I generally try to have the, the, the business disclaim all warranties and sell their product as is, where is, without any warranties of any kind, unless the warranty is one that you specifically want to give to the customer, which is fine, and most of the time there is something, but then I'm going to write it as specifically as possible. If you don't have a good contract that disclaims all warranties, then the law is going to imply a bunch of warranties. Uh, there's a warranty called the warranty of merchantability. There's one called the warranty of fitness for a particular purpose. 
There are other implied warranties there. Um, there's a warranty of, of, of good title um, and others. I want to disclaim all of those. And I want to say the, the only warranty that the business gives is this one. And then we're going to write it out. And that's maybe it's repair or replace. Um, and, and only for defects that are spelled out here. Um, but that's one thing. Then there's um, limitations of liability. Um, once our warranty is narrowly tailored and narrowly drafted, then we're going to say that the business um, is uh, its its maximum liability, for example, is going to be the amount paid by the customer to the business. You don't want there to be all of these consequential damages and incidental damages that go on forever and could bankrupt you. The 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 highest amount of a liability should be clear and anticipated and intuitive. Um, so we put that in there. Um, a big mechanism for keeping the business out of the courtroom, and I alluded to this earlier, is what goes into the dispute resolution clause. So a couple of things about that. One is, if you do end up having to be in court, you want it to be in your home court. If you're a business in Cleveland, Ohio, and you sell something to somebody in Alaska, and they're going to sue you, you don't want to have to go to Alaska to defend yourself. So you would put a jurisdictional provision in there or a choice of law or choice of venue provision, and usually it's all three, that says that if we end up in court, the exclusive jurisdiction will be in the state and federal court situated in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, um, and that that is the only place. And we're going to apply Ohio law and not the law of any other state. But uh, so what that does is it limits the number of courts that you can be hailed into. The, the rest of the dispute resolution provision is probably more important, and that is before you even get to a courtroom, you require the customer, and again, this could be an employee, this could be a vendor, it could be a shareholder, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> you require them to give you written notice of their claim. You get an opportunity to cure their problem and you can time those out so and you and you should time those out so that um, the complaint has to be you have to get notice of the complaint you know no more than 60 days or six months or whatever time limit is reasonable for you and then you the business get 30 days or 60 days to cure it and the dispute resolution provision would say you don't get to go to court customer until you've given me notice and an opportunity to cure. If I have not cured your dispute or your claim or your problem within that time period, then we have to have a face-to-face -face meeting and if within a certain period of time. And if that fails to fix your problem, then we go to mediation. And then if that fails to fix your problem, so now you've got these four um, preliminary steps, these conditions precedent to, fi to filing anything formally. Um, in most cases, in my experience, if that is properly drafted, and there's an art to that, it has to be properly drafted or else the court's not going to enforce it. The chance of you actually being in a courtroom for that claim get really minimized because by the time all, all of those steps have been met, the parties are kind of exhausted and they just want to be done with it. And that's what you want. I mean, it, it's, it's, you want to fix their problem 
face-to-face or informally and not with with the party spending a ton of money on lawyers and a courtroom proceeding that drags out for the next year and a half. And by the way, the last piece of that is, let's say all of those things fail. Let's say your customer is just hell-bent on suing you. Um, you ought to have a discussion with your attorney about whether to have an arbitration provision. So after mediation fails, is a courtroom where you want to be or is arbitration where you want to be? And that is probably a whole nother podcast. There are pros and cons to each one. Arbitrations tend to be more confidential, um, but they also have limitations. Um, uh, whereas uh, in a courtroom, um, there's there are uh, b- generally broad rights of appeal in arbitration, those are much more limited. It's harder to appeal a bad decision. So there's reasons to do one or the other, but that is something that should be contemplated in every customer agreement or any other contract. <coughs> Excuse me. So as I listened to um, what you were talking about, the thing that kept popping into my head was if you do all of those things, you that could just discourage someone from even attempting you know, to, it sort of keeps the people who are just litigious away right. from you because you, you make it difficult. But it's not easy. Like, it feels to me like people who are litigious, it's because it's easy to do. So if you create an environment where it isn't, then the complaints you're actually going to get are the ones from people who actually want to solve them, not sue them. Right, right. I mean, um, it is it is a litigious society. And... um I would rather have my client focused on getting this uh, getting this issue resolved so that they can get on with their business yeah. than spending a, a lot of time and money in court. Nobody wins. Even when – so I've got 16 people here in my law firm, and um, I, I, about half of our practice is litigation and the other half is transactional. Our litigators are exceptional, but even when we knock it out of the park – even when we do, even when we when we exceed our clients' expectations, they're still not thrilled. They're still not. They would still much rather have not been involved in the litigation to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So yeah, the the harder we can make it for someone to file a lawsuit, much less a frivolous lawsuit, a meritless meritless lawsuit, the better. The better we're doing our jobs, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I do too. I think that that's interesting. And I think it's good for people to hear because I think sometimes people think that attorneys that they that that the attorney is going to create all of this work for themselves to do because then they can bill a lot of hours and that it's not necessary. But it's part of the reason why I wanted us to have this conversation. It is necessary. And, and the more you make sure that you are protected, the the more it feels to me like the less likely you are to encounter situations that end up being ugly. Right. And um, one thing, too, about what you just said, Diane, um, yes, there is a built-in incentive to hourly fee arrangements for lawyers to keep billing. <clears throat> the good lawyers out there, and there's lots of really good lawyers out there, they are mindful of that and they don't 
um, give into that incentive. Yeah. But the client is actually actually has a lot more power than they think they do. And what I would encourage, a few years ago, I wrote an article for the um, Corporate Counsel Association uh, called How to Save a Ton of Money in Legal Fees. And if you Google that, just Google how to save a ton of money on legal fees, mine is the first article that comes up. There are things, if you find yourself business owners <laughs> in a situation where you do have to um, hire a lawyer, um, whether it's proactively like we've been talking about or reactively because you've been sued, you actually have more power than you think and there are ways to negotiate your engagement letter and there are considerations that you should have in how to find a lawyer and where to look for a lawyer. Um, and hourly billing is... Um, a concept that isn't going away fast enough. Uh, we have we got away from it a number of years ago because our clients were um, making it pretty clear to us um, and to um, most other firms out there that hourly billing is not good for them. Um, here's the analogy, Diane. Um, when you let's say you come home one day and your basement is flooded and you call. Yeah, God forbid, knocking on wood. Um, you call the waterproofer and they come over with a clipboard and they and and you ask them for a quote and they say to you, you know, I can't give you a flat fee here because I don't know how long this is going to take. So I'm going to bill you by the hour. And by the way, I can't guarantee you that I'm going to win this for you, that I'm going to actually seal and dry out your basement. You would tell them to get off your property or you're going to call the cops. But our profession, but my profession uses that model most of the time, yeah. right? And yeah. we, as business owners, just drink it all up because we're vulnerable and because they are, we think that, you know, lawyers have such superior knowledge uh, and, and that they're specialists and that they can command whatever fee arrangement they want. And I'm here to tell you, Diane, that's no longer the case. Um, you just have to know how to negotiate. And you have to know that flat fee billing and contingency fee billing, capped fees, blended rates, there's so many other options other than a straight hourly fee. And if your lawyer can't tell you how long something is going to take, um, you got to find another lawyer. Wow. Awesome. That's great. Uh, and that's really what people need, need to know. Um, yeah. Now, along those lines, is there a point at which a company is better off having an in-house attorney instead of out of house? Yeah. Yeah. It is a, um, it's, it, it's really a pure mathematical uh, question and it, it sort of marries math with comfort level. Um, so when I, so I was in-house counsel before I started this law firm and um, I'd say it was probably a hundred million dollar company at that point before they hired me. That made sense to them. Their legal bill um, was at a their their bill to outside counsel was significantly more than what they were going to pay me as an in-house counsel. And wow. considering how much was at stake in the uh, litigation that they had out there and uh, the investment they were making in the growth of their uh, of their organization bringing in an in-house counsel just made, made a lot of sense. It's the same process for any business. There's a point in time when you see your legal bills coming in and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, I'm spending a lot of money 
um, or I'm not spending a lot of money, but I should be. Um, and the reason I'm not is because I'm sort of going through life with these blinders on where I'm not auditing myself and not getting the help I need. Um, you And you say, all right, I've got a lot of investment in this business and um, I can have um, I can keep spending money on outside counsel or not spending it at all when I need to, or I could bring somebody in. And when that cost benefit uh, tilts in favor of bringing someone in is usually where that pain point is. It's usually a question of, you know, how much should I spend now on a salaried employee versus how much am I spending on outside counsel and how much am I leaving at risk by not spending the money? Okay. Um, will you talk a little about, um, well, to say it politely, the challenges with pulling uh, business documents off the internet? Sure. Um, I sometimes wonder whether it's better to not do it at all. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you that you will be forever limited when you do that by what the internet doesn't know about you and your business, um, which is everything. Um, there, so yes, there are services out there. Um, that will give you a templated document. Um, maybe some of those services will put a lawyer on the phone who you will never meet. Um, and maybe that faceless, nameless lawyer will be able to answer some of your questions for you at that time. Um, and that service may save you a bunch of money. If that's the service you were talking about, or were you just talking about just pulling documents off the internet without any service at all? Well, really, either. I mean, okay, because they're they're people are doing both. Right. So, not talking to a lawyer when you're getting your initial documents put together is just a bad idea. Um, there are nuance there, and you have no idea what you're getting um, or what the author of the document that you're getting is uh, thinking when he or she is drafting those documents. That's just a bad idea. You're, you're setting yourself up for doom and gloom when you just pull something off the internet and using it. There are services, as I said, that will give you something that's a little bit more custom made and some voice on the other end of the line will answer some of your questions about that document. That's slightly better than the, than, than the first version, but it's still not in my opinion, as good as getting into a room with a lawyer who will ask you lots of questions about your business and about where your business is going um, and is not going to try to get you off the phone so they can make their quota for the day. Um, there is still, in my opinion, a real art um, that goes into the attorney client relationship and learning as much as one needs to learn about the client's business is infinitely more effective when you're in the room with that lawyer um, and you have a line to that lawyer and that lawyer has established a good relationship with you. 
Thank you so much for that. And I, and I really hope that people heard what you said about that there is an, there is so much information about you and your business that the internet will never know that they do not right. know and they cannot help you make um, really solid critical decisions uh, because of that. It's just boilerplate, right. just a template. It needs, okay. So great. So uh, I, I so appreciate you um, sharing this information. I think it is invaluable for the listeners of this podcast. Will you tell them, how they can find you. Tell them a little bit about your podcast and um, what you've got going on, please. Sure. Uh, so my law firm is Gertzberg Law, and we have offices in Cleveland and Chagrin Falls. If you go to GertzbergLaw.com, you'll find us there. Um, we have a service that we offer called Cover My Six, which can be found at CoverMySix.com, and it is a legal audit of those six areas. Um, and it is um, geared towards, there, there are, are um, aspects that are established for startups and small businesses, and then there's a much more in-depth audit for more mature companies um, that have been in business for a while, um, and they're priced accordingly. But what, they, what, what those services are intended to do is get a business of any size covered and kept out of court so that they can focus on their their business instead of on litigating. Um, and then the podcast, which folks are definitely going to want to hear the Diane Helbig episode, because it, <laughs> it was fantastic, um, is, uh, is best podcast ever, um, which, um, you know, I, Molly and I talk about how we still want to be um, you, Diane, when we grow up, but we're trying <laughs> one day, one episode at a time. Um, and the, the website is thebestpodcastever.com. Um, but we're thinking about changing it to um, best podcast ever, except for Accelerate Your Business. There you go. Uh, so it's the second best podcast ever <laughs> as, as after well you that. Should. Yeah, of course. But that's a long domain name. I don't know if I can get it. it. Nah, yeah. you'd have to, you know, shorten it. You'd have to bitly it or something. Right. So it really is, it is really is great. And and one of my favorite things about it is that you learn so much about various entrepreneurs and their business and, you know, who they are and why they got into it. It's just, it, it's a um, sort of the, the person side of the business. And so I, along with, little nuggets of their expertise. So, uh, and I well, was we, honored to be a guest on it. I will we say. learned, I, I, I have to tell you just as a side note. So my girlfriend and I were driving to Oktoberfest last month and we were listening to the episode to our interview of you. And, um, we sat in the car to listen to the end of it for like a good 20 minutes instead of going to Oktoberfest because it was such an engaging conversation. And I'd forgotten, you forget when you're the interviewer, some of the real nuggets of information there. And you really educated our audience so well. You, um, that, was, that was a great interview. So thank you, Diane, for uh, being such an awesome guest on my podcast. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. It was good. See? It, it's all worked out, right? So, yeah. um, so once again, I, I really do thank you tremendously for this. I thank the listeners for tuning in. Uh, this is one you're going to want to listen to a couple of times to make sure that you um, really 
uh, get what Alex is telling us about how to protect ourselves and our businesses and keep ourselves out of court. Um, and I'd like to thank our sponsor, audible.com. To get a free trial of audible.com as well as a free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash business growth to sign up. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change Podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.